Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One podcast. Thrilled to be back with Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, the absolute greatest who covers the, the Indiana Pacers, but has done so much more over the last year. Started to dip her toes into NBA draft waters as well, but just one of the best basketball minds out there. Somebody that I've had the privilege of working with before and actually our first ever guest here on the podcast. Caitlin, welcome back. How's summer been treating you? Good. I'm very excited anytime I get a return invite to a podcast because that means I wasn't terrible. And because I was the debut guest, this is still a podcast that's alive and up making new pods. I didn't sync it before it even got off the ground. So this is all good signs. We owe it all to you, Caitlin. And I only say that uh, partially sarcastically because you you actually have one of the the highest ranked episodes that we've had in terms of downloads and, and viewability. So there's a lot of merit to having you back on here, not just with our click rate, but it's because you do a fantastic job. So we're, we're thrilled to have you back. I'm always excited to talk with you about basketball. One of my favorite people to discuss the game with. Well, as you remember, we always start off our, our podcast by asking a question of our guests and I think of this as season two of the podcast, right? We're, we're going into our second year here. So we are coming up with a different question. And Caitlin, uh, this one's a little bit more nuanced than the last time, but similarly, general basketball philosophy and end game decision making. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So let me paint the situation for you. 18 seconds to go in the game. Your team is down four. You've got one timeout remaining inbounding the ball in the full court, going down to attack. Do you go for a quick two in this situation, trying to cut that deficit to two, or are you going for the three-pointer? Well, as you remember, I tend to overthink these things. So when there is actually an NBA game from this year that I watched that this exact almost scenario played out in. So the Cavs were playing the Grizzlies and they were down four with, I, I, it was slightly more time. It was probably about 20 seconds. And I rewatched this not too long ago. And so they, they had it at half court. It wasn't full court, but they got a very quick back cut for Laurie Markkinen, cut it to two. The Grizzlies inbound it to John Morant. John Morant starts to stumble. You would think this would be an opportunity where they could have gone and trapped John Morant while he was falling down. And the whole crowd was yelling that he traveled, which he probably did. But instead, they just run over to Jaw, <laughs> um, Goodwin did, and just tapped him to get the foul so that they could send him to the line. He goes and makes both free throws, and then they come down, and Darius Garland tries to get a step back three to cut the, the deficit to one. He doesn't make the three, and then they ended up losing by four when time expired. But So to point this out, I am pretty much against the quick two in most situations. I don't I think that we too often think of the quick two as an easy two, but it's a guaranteed two. So I don't know if you knew this, but PBP stats, Daryl Blackport actually has a calculator where you can hit in this information and determine. Yes. So I've, I've looked this up. So you can find the exact spot where your two point percentage for which a two is better than shooting a three at a given time in an end of game situation. So, and with this amount of time left to have a two that's equivalent to 30% from three, You'd have to hit your two at an 85% clip to feel good about winning in this situation. So to summarize my very long answer, I'm generally going to go look for the three. Yep, I'm with you. I think of it, and that's a great statistical and analytical breakdown of it. To me, 
I think of it kind of glass half full, full versus glass half empty, right? Like if you are an optimist, you're saying we're going to take the three and after we make it now, it's never going to be more than a two possession game. We don't need more than two possessions to force us to go into overtime because we trim the lead, we trim the lead, we trim the lead. Now we can, you know, one three-pointer cuts it to, to one. If they make both free throws, then we're still down three. We can tie and send to OT. Then there's the glass half empty way, which is I don't want to come up empty handed on any possession. I mean, even if you, you get the quick two, there's still a chance that you're going to have to go for a three, maybe even a four point play next time. Like it, you're going to have a higher likelihood of coming up empty handed the next time without making headway right now. So I, I'm kind of with you. I, I go for the three. And uh, and I think that the the statistical stuff. Can you send that to me when we're done, so I can either post that out on Twitter or just have a look at it myself? Yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. You can play around with it and hit it in different times. It, it took up a lot of my time today, actually. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> always fun to be doing that. So, uh, Caitlin, one of the reasons you're always one of the best people to have on here is your incessant X's and O's knowledge of the game of basketball and how much studying and detail you put into understanding playbooks and actions and schemes around the league. And probably one of my favorite segments that we did last year was talk about, you know, X's and O's trends, things that we've started to see through game action that are becoming more and more popular in the NBA. Years ago, that was the Spain pick and roll, right? Where a couple teams starting to do that. You fast forward two, three, four years, everybody in the league runs some variation of the Spain pick and roll. You know, we're seeing different actions that teams are starting to run that will become parts of every team's playbook years from now. So I'm going to ask you this question, same one I asked last year, but are there any specific actions or trends on court that you, you noticed last year that you're watching for this upcoming season? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I pay attention to summer league too, because like it's kind of the reverse phrase that you know what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. Sometimes, sometimes those teams take that stuff home. Um, and this morning I kind of posted a little mini thread about it. But what you just said is pretty accurate. That like pretty much every NBA team runs some variation of Spain and get may, they might get into it in different ways, but the te- teams are running three man pick and roll actions. So like the Pacers, for instance, and I noticed other teams are starting to look at this too are pulling that stack screener out like they're setting up like they're going to be in Spain and then going into a different action so like just for an example like Andrew Nemhard and Isaiah Jackson uh, Andrew Nemhard's the ball handler Isaiah Jackson's the role man Chris Duarte would be the stack screener he presents as though he's going to be the stack screener and then goes off an exit screen in the corner so like a lot of teams will either triple switch a stack screen or they're going to use the big to hop around the stack screen and then switch the guards. So when the big's looking up over their shoulder, like that can be a little disorienting. I mean, a lot of teams counter that automatically like Spain leak where the guards just going to go out to the wing. But in this case, they're coming off a corner pin in. So that too. And then like, I think over the years, we more so think of teams like trending towards pick and rolls with guards filling both corners but I've seen a lot more actions where we're leaving the high side open with yeah. empty corner and pairing that with a baseline screen in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Or like a thing that I liked that the Houston Rockets did was using like role replace with Jabari and Tari on side pick and rolls to then again, attack that low man in a different way where it's not just keeping your shooter. It's not just putting Jabari in the corner. It's him literally cutting up from the block as Tari rolls 
Um, just attacking low man in a different way. I think those are two major pick and rolls trends that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, everything comes down to attacking the low man in some way, right? Trying to figure out how you can exploit the tagger or lift him out of position so you get early easy shots at the rim. Uh, I'm glad you brought up a little bit of like two-man games and more empty pick and rolls because that's one of the things that I noticed a lot of different built-in variations to try to get to that point and counters to a lot of actions that are becoming more regular. So I remember watching this is going to be, you know, more Pacers specific here when Sabonis was handling at the high post and trying to dribble into an empty side dribble handoff. If he was going towards a shooter or that would be denied. If he had his man sagging way off of him at the elbow, the read would become kind of this wonky ball screen where Sabonis is the handler fakes it almost looking like it's a handoff. And instead of the guard coming up and receiving the ball, he just veers into the path of Sabonis's defender. So he can drive with his left hand to the rim. I'm starting to notice more of those types of incidental contact type of actions uh, flowing a little bit more freely. That that was something that was big at summer league. And, and I try to take it with a grain of salt because you never know uh, sometimes if that's uh, on purpose or on accident, but either way it's effective. And sometimes I think as a coach, the best playbook wrinkles or additions that we've made in the middle of the season have just been, you know, flubs that end up getting made on the fly and saying, Hey, you know what? That actually worked. Let's try to do that by design. Uh, I think that we're going to get to the point where so many bigs are such good handlers in the NBA, and we're close to it now, but we're probably two, three, four years away from almost every big man being able to handle the ball in some regard, where these inverted pick and rolls, these fake handoffs that turn into rub screens and action that flows off of it is going to be really, really staples of, of different attacks because they're just so hard to guard and they're natural counters to zoom actions, which again, every team in the NBA runs some sort of yep. a zoom action, a quarter handoff. If you have skilled big men, if you have floor spacing around it and guards that are, are going to get top locked, this is a perfect counter for that. I know the Sixers used to do it with Embiid in some regards. The Pacers did it with Sabonis. I think this is something a lot of teams are going to be taking advantage of in the future. Yeah, no, I love that you brought that up because that was the very counter that Nate Bjorkman would go to. Like if a team top locked Doug McDermott, Doug would basically just sandwich that guy into Sabonis at the elbow for elbow inverted pick and roll. And it almost functions as two screens in a way. Like you're getting your own guy plus that guy with, you know, Sabonis being able to get down to the hill to his left. When you said that about incidental, there was even a moment this year where they run like, you know, just a back screen at the free throw line. And then the guy coming off will go around into a DHO with Sabonis. Charlotte does a lot of switching. So they switched that cut and Duarte realized that the cut was switched. So he just went and screened for Sabonis clear at the wing with Sabonis coming downhill. And I think that that brings up a bigger trend as a whole. Like you talking about bigs as ball handlers that more and more like we're matching role to skill, not to size. So it's acceptable for bigs to be doing more as the pick and roll ball handler in all these different positions on the floor. And also like, you know, we're seeing guards as rollers. We're seeing guards as screeners in a lot of different circumstances where maybe we wouldn't have before. I mean, I watched Terry Taylor in a six foot five body as a role man for the Pacers almost every game. So that's another good one as well. I mean, and there's even more spots where you can get, like, I think we're going to get into it with one of these teams later, an idea that I have, but I won't say too much. But, like, when you get into some of those pick and rolls in the corner and you're getting a big, look how far that stretches the defense out to be able to help on that. Like, yeah. you're almost going to have to next that to be able to really cover it with how far those other three defenders are going to have to 
cover ground. You, you pretty much have to. And, and even if, you know, it doesn't end up being a full rotation to the corner, if you run an inverted screen and, you know, a big ends up having to switch off of that because he's not in good position. Now Sabonis is coming to his left. If let's say Duarte was the guy setting that. Now Duarte's defender may have to switch on to Sabonis, which turns into a post-up situation. Do you double right there with the big man already in place and try to either scram switch back on the fly or just keep a hard double there? Do you send somebody from the weak side to run two at it? They're great ways to create rotations. And at the end of the day, that's what NBA offense is really built on is, you know, targeting the low man and the tagger in pick and roll actions and forcing scrambles and rotations so you can get help defenders moving. The great scorers in the league are going to be able to score one-on-one. They're going to create their own advantages. But over the course of a game where you have 70, 80, 90 possessions, you absolutely need to be able to generate slow down, easy looks for the other guys on your team. And rotation is is the way that you typically do that. So, uh, again, I think there are a lot of great actions out there that teams can begin to look at. I think you're pretty pretty wise and, and sharp in looking at those counters to Spain, right? If everyone else is starting to do it, are we going to see all of the branches from the tree start to break off where now there's this counter, there's that counter. They become staples of league offense, and the teams that are first to those actions and innovate become really hard to guard in the short term. Yeah, defensively, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think is next defensively. I thought about this a little bit today, and I, yeah. I I tend to look like I don't know if you look at specific teams, but like when I think about innovative defensive teams, I tend I my eye goes to the Raptors first. Yes, hundred um, yeah. percent. Some some of the heat, like there was a moment in summer league again last year where I kind of thought the Pacers were going to do this, where you could overhear the coaching staff on an ATO play. They, the Pacers were on defense, and you could overhear the coaching staff tell the two guys defending the guys in the corner that they wanted them higher. So effectively, instead of just being even with them along the baseline, they wanted them in shift position up above the corners. They wanted everybody playing above their check. So instead of shrinking the floor into the corners and or into the elbows and the blocks, you're effectively shrinking space up the floor and getting like first mover advantage, which, which the Pacers didn't do a ton of that this year. But like when you look at the Raptors and the Heat and how many corner threes, like they're giving up the highest corner three frequency in the NBA. And for good reason, I mean, they can play in and out. They have the length to be able to play in and out. They do some stuff with peel switching, or at least Toronto does. Miami does it a little bit different, but like the idea that you're never fully collapsing their defense, that they're picking you up a little bit higher, fortifying the paint higher with their wingspans and lateral size so that those shots aren't as good and that they're funneling those shots to role players instead of, you know, stars. If you're, if you're playing in the gaps and you're collapsing on a star dribbling and you give a corner three and you have link to contest it, I think that you're willing to give that up. And that's kind of a different concept. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, it's personnel dependent in a lot of ways. I think that the heat are small and fast enough to fly around and make a lot of that stuff work. And the Raptors are big and long enough to cover up any, you know, catch and shoot looks that you might get out of a closeout where if they're willing to give that up, they're either in great position on the weak side to prevent a second chance opportunity. Or, you know, if you're, if you're Miami, again, you need to get out and run in a lot of those situations. Um, Different trends defensively. Like a couple of years ago, I spoke at a coach's clinic, uh, spoke at a clinic. It was an online thing in the, at the peak of COVID. And the theory was kind of out of timeout plays and specifically defense 
where there were a lot of data out there on Synergy that indicated switching to zone in an ATO situation can drop the opponent's offensive points per possession by almost you know, 0.2 points of possession, which is a huge jump. Um, I think we started to see a lot more zone in dead ball situations and specifically out of timeouts, late games from a lot of teams across the league. I think that it's no longer viewed as a bailout or a cop out, but it's a smart thing to do when you don't have enough personnel to match up one-on-one or you want to keep the team out of the lane and just force them to be a jump shooting group. Uh, noticed that happened a lot to the Boston Celtics uh, this past year because they had so many big, strong scoring wings. Hey, just turn them into a jump shooting team and we'll take our chances with that. So I think more zone, but different aspects, different types of zone. One thing that I've been toying with and thinking about a little bit more, these really long switchy kind of one through five teams, like the Raptors had a lineup out there in the postseason where I think everybody had a seven foot wingspan. And when you have those, you can be more, more versatile and do different things on the defensive end of the floor. The trend for the last decade has been, Hey, let's switch everything, right? Whether it's on ball or off ball, just find ways to switch because we don't care who beats us at the point of attack. We have enough length, athleticism, good defenders on the, on the floor. I think the, the next trend of that is going to be some sort of a zone that morphs into man-to-man late clock, where when it turns into a high ball screen situation or let's say the ball finally gets penetration in the middle of the floor, somebody who's in the middle now takes the ball and everybody else finds the closest to them and matches up. Maybe it's a situation where, you know, we're, we're guarding in zone for the beginning of the shot clock. Finally, the end of the clock comes. They're going to go for some sort of a high ball screen against the zone to see if they can just get some sort of a pull up or shot, force one simple rotation on the perimeter. Maybe we end up, you know, trapping that. We end up coming out and actually guarding that like it's man to man. So, I think as roster flexibility continues to grow, we'll see more creative uses of both man and zone in the same possession. Yeah. So I wrote that article about the Pacers like a week, a week or two ago. Like that was fascinating. The first time that I noticed them do that was against the bulls in November. And I thought I watched it live and I was like, I I'm going to need to watch that back to see exactly what just happened because there were moments under Nate Bjorkman where literally they were supposed to be in box and one and two people wouldn't even realize it and they would stay in man. Like, so it was an incongruent scheme by accident. So when I watched, I'm like, maybe this was an accident, but then they played a lot of zone against the bulls that night. Cause the bulls are a, you know, low volume three point shooting team. Mm-hmm. They were on the second night of a back to back as well. But yeah, if the ball went into the high post, they triggered mid possession. They were in two, three zone. They triggered it to man to man on those catches. And then they did that more throughout the season. So it worked pretty well against the bulls. And like, just for my eye, I had to watch, probably like 10 possessions to figure out what is the trigger here because like you know when you're looking at floppy zone that can be a lot of different things like maybe it, maybe when the ball goes to the small forward side of the floor that's when you're going to go into man or maybe like what you're saying if it's a certain pick and roll situation or if it goes to the short corner or wherever you're going to go you can switch in and out of it so like just I, I mean I think too just like watching the Warriors in the playoffs and other teams like how many different looks they're showing in games And maybe like how much is the base defensive scheme as we move forward and you have more versatile defenders still going to be a thing versus Mm -hmm. being able to do lots of different coverages in sequential order to keep pick and roll creators off balance. Yeah. 
Yep. And I think ice switching is something we'll see a lot more of too. Denying ball screens from getting away to the middle. And then instead of staying with your man, just forcing him to somebody else and being okay if they try to, you know, throw it over the top and hit the pop guy. That's just that's something to me that that I think is um with more length, with more athleticism and not caring about, you know, who's guarding who on your team, you can do stuff like that. I look at the Raptors, I look at maybe the the Celtics a little bit, the Bucks in some regard, just because of how much length they have on the floor, uh, sp- specifically in moments when Lopez isn't out there. Like they'll be able to do some stuff like that. Golden State, uh, I think there are younger teams that are building towards that. I always mention Detroit as a team that has athletic enough bigs and enough size in their, their guard spots to be able to be a little bit more switchy and creative with it. So uh, I – I love the piece that, that you have right there on, you know, on, on the Pacers and the zone switching stuff. I think that it's going to become a lot more frequent because you know, NBA teams adjust in the off season, not just in game situations. So all of these coaching staffs are going back over the summer, sitting down and game planning, preparing for the season. Zone offense is going to be much more of an emphasis than we've probably seen in the last maybe ever in NBA circles. So having that as a prepared part of the playbook for different types of zones, different switches that they may see out of it. uh, it, It's definitely a way of life now in the NBA. So teams that stay ahead of that trend are the ones that can disguise their zone the way that the Pacers did pretty well, or can have different looks, different switches, different triggers to go into man to man and really stall out an offense as a result. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. I think this probably could have been a podcast in and of itself. Well, we've gone we've gone about twenty minutes on on that stuff and the nitty gritty here, but I think we got to give the people what they want too, which uh, which is what we originally said we'd be talking a lot about the Eastern Conference and breaking down where we see this season coming in the East. Uh, look, I, I've been doing a lot of work with Sam Vecini over on the Game Theory Pod in looking at young cores around the NBA with a specific focus on guys who were drafted in the last few drafts. This one's meant to be a little bit different. This is the team as a whole, more of a a full nuanced look at each of the 15 teams in the Eastern Conference. We're not going to have a timer up there where we spend a certain amount on every single franchise. That would take way too long with, uh, with Caitlin and I here. But I think that the easiest way to do it is to break teams down into tiers. Uh, look at it's not perfect, but it, it's kind of how I look at things here. That there are four te- four tiers that teams always fall into. There are your title contenders. There are those that I think are locks to make the playoffs, but not quite on that contender status. There's that third tier of of teams, the realistic playoff, you know, hopes and expectations, but not necessarily a lock to get there. And then that fourth tier, those that are still building and probably not ready to make that leap this year. It doesn't mean that we can't be proven wrong throughout the course of the season. I definitely had Cleveland in tier four last year and they, you know, they proved themselves to be knocking on the door of the playoffs real quickly. So this is always to be taken with a grain of salt, but Caitlin, no better person to go through any of this with. Let's start with those uh, teams at the bottom. If that's oh, a, we're starting at the bottom. Okay. Let's, 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 let's go the Drake way. Start at the bottom, and then we'll get there. I have that being a pretty large tier in my, uh, my Eastern Conference side of things. I've got six teams at the bottom there. Now, I, I get it. 
with the play-in games, there are 10 that end up making some sort of postseason play and earning their way in, into a chance there. So one of these six that I would mention will at some point make their way up and you know be a qualifier, at, at the very least, if not two of them. But I have six in here, and I'll just throw those out, Blake, at statement. You can tell me who you agree with, who you have in different tiers, and we'll dive into some of these at first. But I've got the Hornets, Magic, Pacers, Pistons, and then maybe like a half step above some of them, Wizards and Knicks. And I put the Knicks with a giant asterisk because the Donovan Mitchell saga. Everybody knows that they're rumored to be one of those teams looking to acquire a star. If it changes between now and then, the Knicks trajectory is going to be a lot different. But as it stands right now on August 25th, I've got those six teams in my bottom tier. Caitlin, who you got? Okay, our bottom tiers are identical. And I agree with the slight amount of separation for the the Knicks and the Wizards as well. I will say that the team that I've kind of given the least amount of thought to is the Wizards. I just, I, I, I don't really get what their direction is. I don't, weird. I don't fully understand weird. it. Yeah. And I, I said this with, with Sam Vecini the other day, like every time they get an intriguing and good young player, they bring in one or two veterans at the exact same position so that the guy can't see the floor. So they've got so much overlap. Like they have a lot of somewhat three slash four switchy shooting wings, but they don't all fit well together. They've got a couple guys who are like adequate, probably best as a sixth man guards, but no real starter to go next to Bradley Beal. It's just such a, a mix of things. I like Monte Morris. I, I hope he does well because I, I love watching him play. I think that his turnover averse, like low risk style fits really well next to Bradley Beal on the offensive end of the floor. I think the Wizards probably need more of a defensive stopper because Beal is not going to be that guy and you want to rest him anyway. I don't know if I trust their rim protection. I don't know if Porzingis is ever going to be a five or a four defensively. Like I just, I don't know. There's so many question marks here. Well, you can recognize like they keep making small incremental progress from a talent perspective, really weird group. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of my fear, too, is, like, I think Wes Ensel did a really good job adding flow game elements to their offense last year. Like, but when you're a coach and you've coached guys from a different team and then they come and join your team, I'm just a little bit afraid that he's going to lean a little too heavily on Monte Morris and Will Barton. And I'm with you. I, I understand Monte Morris, king of the assist-to-turnover ratio, fits pretty well with Bradley Beal. They wanted a point guard, but, like, and again, it's a, it goes back to the direction thing, because if you're just trying to win games in the short term and you want to be competitive, which it seems like they do since they've re-signed Bradley Beal, then it's probably fine. But, you know, you have Rui Hashimuri, who's supposedly had a fairly decent summer this summer, and you have Denny Avdia, who probably needs to start at small forward so that you can have some degree of a defensive presence out there on the wing. And, you know, oh, I already have Corey Kispert. And like what you just said with Johnny Davis, I don't even really know where he fits into the rotation if they think that he's going to, I mean, he had a fairly rough summer league. I didn't really understand how he was incorporated in some of those games. I thought that was a little bit head scratching as well, but um, overall, I just don't have a lot of thoughts about them. Cause if I'm being honest, I probably would have moved Bradley Beal rather than signing him to an extension and gone full rebuild mode, but that wasn't in the cards for the wizards. So 
Well, you, you said the words rebuild mode. Like I, I hesitate to say the Pacers are in that. I think the Pistons are. I think the, you know the Magic are still a really young team trying to figure out a lot of their pieces. Those f- fans and franchises certainly understand why they're trending a little bit more towards the bottom here. I think the Hornets are sneakily a team that just hasn't gotten a lot better and also has some of those mismatched pieces. There were the Gordon Hayward trade rumors. Do you try to find a way to maximize his large contract to get somebody a little bit younger or that fits on the defensive end? Obviously, the offseason saga with with Miles Bridges has hurt their uh, their star power as well as just you know left them with a, a pretty big hole that they might need to fill and don't have the internal guys to to do it. A lot of young guys on the roster that. I'm very lukewarm on, don't really love outside of LaMelo. So I just, I don't have very high expectations for that Hornets group this year. Yeah. I mean, and I think that like, is their big acquisition, Steve Clifford? Like, I mean, I think it kind of is because that's their biggest problem was their defense. So um, when the Pacers were doing coaching searches the last two years, Steve Clifford was one of the people on their list. So like, I did look at him really heavily. And, you know, from his prior time in Charlotte, like some of the defenses that were competent top 10 that he put together with Vucevic at the five or Al, or Al Jefferson at the five, that's some wizardry. Yeah. And they do do some unique things where like if they're running side pick and rolls and, you know, blitz the flip, they'll they'll blitz that or they'll trap side pick and rolls. So that does keep a lot of the action away from the rim. I mean, Vucevic had some lengthier rangy athletes, obviously, around him in Orlando, but um, maybe he fixes some of that on that end of the floor, but I can't say that I'm like super excited about the potential there. And like you said, like I, you know, I don't want to minimize at all what my, the Miles Bridges situation is, but you, you have to talk about it in relation to what their trajectory is. And if he's not going to be out there, like I looked up a stat whenever he was going to be a restricted free agent before some of that obviously came out. And I think he was one of few players who had a hundred possessions as both the pick and roll ball handler and the screener and scored over a point per possession in both categories. So like, you know, you're not having that same degree of rim pressure without him and everything else that he adds in terms of his shake and what he can do with LaMelo. So um, I don't see them being better than they were last year. I expect them to be worse. So, yeah. Yep. And I think outside of that, like the Pistons and Magic probably win a few more games this year than they did last year. Maybe even the Pacers, because I think having a simple identity of, Hey, here's Tyrese Halliburton. Give him the ball, play screen and roll. Let him make everybody better. Surround him with shooters. You can stay in a lot of games just by playing that type of style. So, uh, and, any, and anytime you have Rick Carlisle at the helm, that uh, that counts for something. That's a couple wins right in the arm, right there. So, uh, I think that that drops the Hornets down a little bit. Even if they didn't get that much worse, so to speak, the fact that all these other teams in this tier are catching up to them a little bit more just makes it a lot harder for them to separate themselves. It's possible that I might be a little bit lower on the Pacers than you are. Maybe. I'm thinking I probably am because, I mean, after the trade deadline, they had the worst defense in the NBA. Their transition defense was dead last. Like It had a lot of issues with – I think they're going to have to find a balance between what they're doing on the offensive glass and how they're getting back because they were a very good offensive rebounding team in part because they needed to keep pace with other teams being – really good offensive rebounding teams because of what their own defensive rebounding issues were. But um, that's going to be an issue. I mean, I guess if Miles Turner's back and on the roster, that will help some. But when they only had one five out there, even with it was Miles, they had defensive issues they're going to have to fix. I do agree with you. I think that 
I mean, I strongly agree with their strategy. People have heard me talk about the Pacers pretty in-depth lately, but I, I agree with their strategy to find out if Tyrese can be your number one option, encourage him to be more of a score-first guy. There's going to be spacing all around him. I think that's one of their biggest strengths. They were a top-15 offense after they acquired him, but I think that the defensive issues are going to take some time. And they've been very vocal and out there that they know that this is going to be, that they need to be patient and that this is going to be a process. So if they do move on from Buddy and Miles, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that they'll have the worst record in the Eastern Conference. Yep. And again, I think that that's, if we're putting asterisks on everybody with trade rumors and still the ability to, for rosters to change between now and the start of the season, that's certainly one where, hey, if you lose two veterans and your rim protector on a team that's already thin on defense, that's going to drop you down a little bit. So uh, I think as they're constructed right now, I think they might surprise and win a few more games, but certainly the pathway is there to continuing to clean house a little bit. So, all right, Caitlin, let's move into that next tier, that tier three of realistic playoff teams, but not necessarily a lock. This may surprise some people. Uh, I have four teams in this tier. So essentially that makes it nine, eight, seven, and six in some order for me in the Eastern Conference. One of these teams would end up earning a, I don't want to call it a first round buy, but the ability to avoid the play-in game. So one of these will at least move up pretty far on my list. But I've got the Cavaliers and the Hawks. And then maybe like a half step above them, the Nets and the Raptors. Those are four teams that I can say, I believe they'll be playoff teams, but it wouldn't shock me if something happened that kind of knocked them down or out of it for some reason. What say you? I'm a little bit different here. This is where we diverge a bit. Okay. So I in this tier only have, I also have the Hawks and the Cavs, but I also have the Bulls in this tier. I was not um, overly thrilled with what the Bulls did this offseason. And if Lonzo isn't ready to go, which again, this is this is asterisks. We don't we don't know what the situation is. It sounds like he might not be ready for training camp. It sounds like Goran Dragic has indicated that he thinks he might be playing 20 to 25 minutes per game, which leads me to believe that he that they think that Lonzo isn't going to be fully ready. But I just don't think that they necessarily answered what their main problems were. Like I. I think that their main problems are that they were like last in three-point attempt rate last year. They don't get up a lot of threes. They have some credible spacing issues and that uh, their rim protection. Like they talked about the possibility of playing a rim protector with Vucevic. You're not playing Andre Drummond with Vucevic. I mean, you might get some offensive rebounding off the bench from Drummond, which might mitigate some of their possession issues. Like if you're not going to make threes, at least you might get some extra possessions. But, you know, they also re-signed Derek Jones Jr. I don't really fully understand why. Um, and I don't really, I don't even completely understand the Goran Dragic thing. Cause I think I would probably just play IO off the bench and at least rely on his defense, let him continue to, you know, his pull-up shooting shaky, but lean into his playmaking, lean into his defense there. Um, I just think that you're betting on, you're betting on DeMar DeRozan, not, I mean, I, I'm not saying that he's going to fall off, but he's going to have to be as special as he was last year. And especially if Lonzo isn't out there, who's kind of like their main two-way player. You're betting that Caruso is going to be able to remain durable with the way that he plays. And you're betting on a leap from Patrick Williams, which I think is going to be somewhat difficult to do. Like, how are, how are you getting like a star type leap development from Patrick Williams, especially if he's in lineups with DeMar DeRozan? Like, they're going to have to do a lot of staggering, I think, to, to get 
the types of reps that he's going to need. I don't know where you stand on the Patrick Williams Bulls situation. Yeah. So I, I, it's strange. I agree with everything that you just said. And then I add like one little explanation in my head that leads me to believe it's going to be okay. So the biggest reason for me is I try not to put health too much into these preseason rankings, uh, particularly maybe this is me just being in fantasy football, like mock draft mode right now, where I'm saying like, Hey, I'm going to go get DeAndre Hopkins. Cause he's only going to miss four weeks, but he's a great performer every other week when he's out there, valuable guy to have. I feel that way with Lonzo. Like he may not be ready at the start of the season, but I feel very comfortable that once we get to January 1st for those final three and a half months of the year, he's going to be really, really good for this team. And we saw what they looked like when he was healthy, when he was out there. They have good scorers in Levine and DeRozan and just surround them with guys who know what their role is and know how to play that, whether that's Lonzo, Caruso, Tasunmu off the bench. I think Andre Drummond, like he doesn't fix their rim protection issue, but he's a good talent grab to have as a backup five where if something ever happens and you need an insurance policy to play 28 minutes a night, I think you do a hell of a lot worse for the contract that they issued to, to get a guy like Drummond. What really impresses me about Patrick Williams is he just seems fearless in a lot of different ways. And I totally agree in order to continue to get him to take that next step to play more with the ball in his hands and take a giant leap on the offensive end of the floor he and DeMar probably need to stagger a lot of their minutes, find ways to play your turn, my turn, make sure that that doesn't wash out Levine and Vucevic. Like those four guys are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. But when you have as many interchangeable piece role players who are really good glue guys that know their role, come in and defend capable shooters, I, I don't think any of them are poor catch and shoot threats. I think the issue was volume and that speaks more to, you know, when you play through a guy like DeRozan or Levine a lot, they're going to take some head down, try to get to the rim, tough mid ranges. But I like the makeup of this roster from an intangible standpoint. And I, I do believe a lot in, in a lot of the stuff I've been hearing this summer about Patrick Williams being ready to, to come in and make a leap. So uh, I look at the rec the record that the bulls had before a lot of the injuries crept up to them last year. See if health isn't going to be that much of an issue this year, Patrick Williams is going to take a, another leap. I still like this team a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that the key there is going to be Billy Donovan being willing. I mean, he seems like somewhat of a player's coach that kind of lets, you know, DeMar do his thing. It's going to be, can you stagger Patrick Williams with Zach Levine and second units and purpose yourself that you want Patrick Williams to be, you know, a second option in that second unit to at least be top two. So that he's getting the types of on ball reps where he can be, you know, this physical creator, get some more live ball passing reps, get some more reps where he can get to his push shot in the paint and kind of develop somewhat into like, not completely, but somewhat of a DeMar type role instead of just being like a corner spacer and some of the lineups that he was used in last year. I think that's going to be pretty key. And maybe early on, like you're saying, like if he's had a good summer, maybe you're going to see this right away. Like maybe from the beginning, if they can purpose him into some of that type of usage, I would feel differently about it then at that point. Yeah, I mean, I don't put stock into every summer workout video I've ever seen or every rumor that I've heard, but I, I have heard from a lot of people who I do trust that Patrick Williams is ready to take that next step. Uh, Caitlin, I got to ask you about the Cavaliers, though, because Colin Sexton remains unsigned to this very moment. 
And there's two parts to this. One, how much does whatever happens with Sexton play into your ceiling or floor for the Cavaliers? And the second part, if he's back, if they just find a way to bring him in with the group that they already have, does that make them more of a playoff lock or more of a team that you might worry about in some regards? I mean, I think like this isn't really the question that you asked, but I think that they did the right thing and not pushing all their chips in yet. Like, you know, the Hawks traded a lot of picks for DeJounte Murray. The Cavs in theory could have done that. They could have paired him with Darius Garland if they, if they wanted to do that. I don't think that they were ready to do that. I think that this season needs to be more about, you know, if Sexton is back, finding out how viable is that backcourt with two smaller guards. I mean, I think it helps that you have Jared Allen and Evan Mobley behind them, certainly. Like, if we're just comparing teams that have had backcourts with, you know, some defensive limitations, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum never had an Evan Mobley and a Jared Allen there. So you can see how that mix is there, what it looks like, and then also what other guys do they have. Who's going to be able to step up in some of these fringe role player roles? Is that, I mean, Karis had rough playing games. I have some thoughts about Karis after seeing him a year or two with the Pacers, but can Karis give you juice off the bench? Is, is Laurie Markin in a long-term piece there? Can Ogbaji, like, I mean, I think he might actually get some minutes for them this year because they didn't have a lot of guys that could do anything with movement shooters. That's in part why they were starting the three, seven footers, in my opinion, just because they needed somebody who could be a movement short shooter and Lori Markin and happened to be seven foot tall. So they decided to play them together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that I, I would be lower on them. I mean, I think that they can make it into the playoffs, but in terms of the other teams we haven't talked about yet, I would probably have them on the nearest fringe, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I also think there could be some hiccups too. If you're trying to get, you know, creator reps from for Evan Mobley in certain circumstances, that might not be a linear progression, but it's still going to be good for his overall development. So um, win with, win with what you have is what I see their season being. Sure. And, and again, the Raptors well-coached team have a clear identity that they're building with as much length and athleticism as they have. The Kevin Durant sweepstakes there. That's why I wanted to, to bring up kind of Raptors and Nets in the same breath. It's done. Kevin Stang, uh, or at least that's all we know at this iteration of the, the saga. So looking at Toronto, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, that in its own is a good enough four-man core that you should be able to make the playoffs with it. I think the biggest reason for me that I didn't bump them up to that next kind of tier or core is because I still, I have some trust issues with everybody else around them. Just with a consistency basis, I see a lot of upside with guys like Precious Achua or you know Gary Trent Jr. being a really good floor spacer and shooter. But I wish there was one more depth piece there that I would say every single day I know what he's going to give me and come in and, and provide that value. Maybe that ends up being Thad Young or Otto Porter. Uh, you know, the Otto Porter signing was was really, really shrewd on their part. Um, good length, good floor spacer, solid defender. But part of me wishes there was just like one more perimeter handler that could go out there and create their own shot. Yeah, and I think that this is – the Raptors I have a lot of thoughts on because <laughs> – I bumped them up into the playoff certainty tier. So I have them one higher. And some of that just goes back to Nick Nurse is going to play these guys a lot of minutes. Like he's going to play them 
a bunch and maybe that affects their durability later on. But when, when you're a team that is going to lean on your top guys during the regular season and you have a solid top 10 reliable defense, that's generally going to lead to a lot of regular season wins. Um, I think that you can probably bet on Scotty Barnes continuing to get better and continuing to develop. But what you just said, I think is the key point because their half court offense. I looked this up before we got on synergy has them ranking 25th and offensive rating in the half court. And that's kind of their biggest issue to me that they're going to need to solve. And for the reasons you just said, so I don't know if you follow him, but Samson folk covers the Raptors better than anyone, in my opinion, at Raptors Republic, probably one of my favorite NBA analysts in general. And I saw him do a video on this on YouTube where he was on with Kenny Beecham. And he mentioned that the Raptors don't run or don't use a lot of ball screens. So if you look up like they, the only, there's only two teams in the NBA that got a lot less of their usage out of ball screens than the Raptors, the Warriors, which makes sense. They play a lot of, you know, split cuts, all of their flow game stuff. And then the Nuggets. And that also makes sense because Jamal Murray wasn't available and they're playing Jokic ball. So I get it. And then if you look at their actual pick and roll usage, like 40% of that is Fred Van Fleet because they don't have another ball handler. So what are you going to be willing to do? And this is, this is what's fascinating to me from Nick Nurse's perspective is they're not using a lot of ball screens to this point for Siakam and Scotty Barnes. Um, They're, they're doing a little bit more with them in the post. They like to get guys, grabbing the ball off the rim and pushing it up the court. So trying to think through what, why they're doing that is what's interesting to me. Cause obviously neither of them to this point is necessarily a pull-up threat. They did run more pick and roll, use more ball screens with Siakam, but going back to in, in the playoffs, I mean, but going back to our initial conversation on X's and O's that we're beginning this with and bigs as ball handlers and, you know, using, you know, incidental contact to get guys to be able to get downhill I think that that might be some low-hanging fruit for them. But then when I started, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I highly recommend it. If you ever want to just pass some time and really wonder why a team is doing something, watch the post-up possessions for Siakam and Scotty Barnes. Because this is why it's fascinating. Because they're not running like traditional post-ups for these guys. So like two years ago, when the Pacers were being coached by Nate Bjorkren, I wrote this piece about the Indiana Raptors and how their playbooks were so identical And they were running like punch sets for Siakam with screening action around him, which was the same that they would run with Sabonis. They would run like a top pin for Ibaka with Mark Gasol in the post, which was the same as Turner and Sabonis. That stuff is gone. Like by my eye, I did not see very much of that at all. So a lot of it is like a bully drive, which I I am in favor of the bully drive because it, it makes defenders have to go from being help defenders to then having the ball behind them and having to defend post automatics. Mm-hmm. The thing with the Raptors offense is though, they don't run a lot of the post automatics. So this is the point. Like if you look at their spacing on these post ups, they typically have at least four players below the free throw line in a lot of these situations. So I'm guessing that that is them leaning into their offensive rebounding a lot because they're like the number two offensive rebounding team. But, and it also kind of helps their transition defense because their defenders have to stay with them below that line, which seems counterintuitive, but they were, they were a very good transition defense too. But point being is, I think that they can combine all this together, like what we were talking about at the beginning to get more efficient on their first offensive possession, rather than having to rely on the second possession and get an offensive rebound. And that if you have Scotty Barnes or Pascal Siakam on the bully drive, if you just 
incorporate some more off ball screening where you can get like a cutter cutting baseline off of a screen to them. Or if you can set a ball screen for them on the bully drive at the elbow, like an inverted pick and roll, just to help them get downhill a little bit. I just think that there's more that they could be doing half court offensively once, you know, Scotty's in the second year um, than what they're getting right now. So I think that the offense is reasonable to go up with what they have. I think that auto Porter does give them a lot, another shooter, which I mean, they're getting a lot of their shots. Plus like just the idea of using Pascal and Scotty as ball handlers might be better for Fred Van Fleet's durability because he's, he's a valid and reliable catch and shoot guy. You can play him off the ball and potentially be bringing him off a stagger while one of them is posting. So I do think that there's more that they could be doing. Yeah. And look, the, the Raptors are, and have been for the last several years, a heavily transition dependent team. Those, like you said, they do well in the regular season. Those tend to scare me a little bit more when you come to playoff time. I think the, this tier that we're talking about, I know I had three or four teams in there. um, I think that it's good enough to be able to challenge them in a lot of different ways where I look at the Eastern conference. I think it's gotten a hell of a lot better offensively over the last few years. You know, the nets have firepower here the Hawks, which we haven't talked much about. Like, can we please see some, some Trey young off ball stuff, please. Oh, we need to talk about the Hawks for sure. Oh, he's too good of a shooter to just continue to be pick and roll to death. I mean, the Cavs, if they're healthy, if they have enough firepower with guys, they can really score. If the Knicks add Donovan Mitchell, that could change their offense and trajectory in that way. I don't think, I think the days are over where the Raptors can just force their will upon everybody and play that style because they're long, they're switchy, they're good defensively. And then they push tempo like hell and then crash the offensive glass. I think they need to find ways to score more in the half court. Uh, I'm glad you're optimistic about it, but I think that's my one reason for not giving them the solid lock of, I know this is a top six team in the East. Oh yeah, I think it's definitely the swing thing. I don't. I don't think I'm expecting a huge leap. I do think that. I mean, I think reimagining and repurposing the post could be good for them. I'll just put it that way. Purposing the post as a vehicle for assists with what the skills that Scotty has are, I think, could help them get some more points. I don't think that they're going to be a top ten offense, and I do see what you're saying with the Hawks and and what the Knicks might be as well. But we should we should talk about the Hawks because I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on the the Trey Young, DeJounte Murray pairing and, and how you're seeing, because I have the Hawks in the same tier as you do as well. Realistic playoff team, but not a lock. Yeah. Uh, to me, it comes down to the usage and the coaching. That's what it's really going to be determined. We have seen year year in and year out, Trey Young is on ball, pick and roll reps. Everything is run through him. I think he wears down. I think that's an easy, predictable style to target. And I think that as long as they're committed to playing both John Collins and Clint Capella on the floor, it limits the different options that you can play off of the short roll or ways that you descri- you, uh, you know, disguise that high pick and roll. So I would love to see more Trey Young movement shooting sets where DeJounte is operating in the half court as the primary and the threat of Young as a shooter off those screens helps open up slips for guys like Capella or or Collins, or even a Kongu. I think that that's just, it's what helps those offenses win and take that next step from 
being driven by a star to being able to win games because you have a star and really good players who know a system around it. Um, I, I watched a lot of Trey Young at Oklahoma this summer. That was the one thing that I did in kind of preparation for this. As soon as the Hawks acquired DeJounte was, okay, how much off-ball stuff? He played off-ball a lot. Came off of a lot of screens. They found ways to get him open in transition. He wasn't bringing it up every single time. I think that there's so much untapped potential here for the Hawks offense. I just, you can't trust in something that you don't know is going to come to fruition, right? You don't know if the playbook is going to feature that stuff and look that way. If it does, I think it's going to work really well. But since I'm not certain on it, they got to remain in this tier. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to the concept of like these heliocentric offenses in general. Because Trey, I think, ranked fourth in usage rate last year. So you have to wonder how much does that impact why he's kind of standing around when he's off the ball. Because he is carrying this heavy weight, is that leading him to be less active when he finally does give it up? So I think in general, I might be a little bit different. And then I think that, and, and kind of knowing Nate McMillan as well, my guess is that Murray is going to adjust more to Trey and not so much the other way around. And that Trey's probably going to be getting second side support from DeJounte more than Trey will be operating off ball. And I don't hate that formula. Like one, one play, like in, in what you're talking about that I think would work really well for them is like the Cavs with Darius Garland and Karis LeVert on the floor will bring Darius Garland, like off of an Iverson screen and then into a comeback back mm -hmm. off of those screens with Karis as the ball handler. So like, if that's DeJounte, I think you should be able to bring Trey off of that action and bring him back. And that kind of creates the idea that like, yes, Trey might be doing a little bit less, but he's doing more and being a threat all the time instead yes. of like my usage is really heavy. And then when I don't have it, you know, I'm, I'm easy to guard because I'm just standing here, that type of a situation. Yep. Plus I do wonder, like you're saying that too, about Capella and John Collins playing at the same time. There's not really an easy way for the Hawks to play five out, but I do wonder if they could play a little bit of five out with Trey in isolation situations, how much you could open up Murray as a cutter, just based on what the Spurs were able to do with Pirtle operating up top. And the Hawks don't necessarily have a big in that mold who's you know a hub necessarily, unless you want to really, really cross your fingers and hope that Jalen Johnson does some of that for them. But, I mean, I think part of the reason why I have them in this tier, too, is because they've lost some depth. And I, I know from many years of writing about Nate McMillan coach teams, I do wonder a bit. I think what's going to be best is if they can stagger Trey and DeJounte quite a bit and let DeJounte run some of those bench units with John Collins, maybe get John Collins more of the touches that he seems to be wanting and those types of lineups. But Nate McMillan tends to lean on all bench units quite a bit um, in the regular season and in the playoffs. So, um, and then what you're saying with the off ball actions as well, like I don't dislike this roster, but I'll be interested to see if the coaching does um, where they need to go, I guess is what I would say. And then, you know, I think that there is somewhat of a drop off going from Herder and Gallo and DeLon Wright to Justin Holiday and Aaron and if Nate's willing to stagger them heavily or not. So that's kind of why I had them in that tier. Sure. No, no doubt about it. I think, it, you know, there are four teams left that we haven't really talked about. I mean, we mentioned the Nets a little bit. I think for me, self-explanatory, just how much do you trust that this is going to be the group that they have at the end of the season? You know, GM Kevin Durant asked for all of these guys and then doesn't like them. Uh, Kyrie, 
you just never know. So I, they don't have my full trust, which is why I can't put the Nets as a lock playoff team. But on talent alone, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons you're you're pretty high on them. Yeah, I had them in the playoff certainty, but I don't feel good about it. Like, I'm not certain in anything that the Brooklyn Nets do. I don't think that I'm necessarily betting on them. It's just I do like the rest of the roster a little bit more in what they did this summer than what they had last year. I still don't know if I feel good about having Seth and Patty and Joe Harris on the same team. Like, that's a lot of shooting, but it's also providing you with a lot of small guards to be hunted, and they tend to give up soft switches really easily or at least that's what I noticed during the playoffs last year. So, but adding Royce O'Neal, adding TJ Warren, I don't know if TJ Warren is still a basketball player or might be a hologram at this point in time, <laughs> but I'm, I'm very intrigued to find out which, which is there, but you know, I think having Simmons and Claxton one five defending pick and rolls where you can switch both of those. I think, you know, depending upon what Ben Simmons even looks like as a player right now, he can add some different elements to the Nets offense that they haven't necessarily had, which probably sounds strange to, to mention, but I think you can run inverted with Ben. I think you can get into some handoffs that you weren't able to get into last year. Um, Just a little bit different dynamic and hopefully helps their defense as well, because in road games last year, they did have the number one offense in the NBA with the way that the roster already was. So um, I think on talent alone, but I, I don't feel good betting on them. That's why I don't have them higher than that. So I mean, look, a year ago, we were all proclaiming this was the the super dynasty. And five months later, James Harden's in a different uniform. So for me, it's the other pieces in the basketball stuff. Like, no, I don't I don't think that they have the greatest defensive infrastructure. Um, I don't think Steve Nash is the most detail oriented coach on that end of the floor either. But there's just so much offensive firepower that they should be they should be able to carry themselves to a lot of wins. Yeah. And I do think too, like adding Igor as an assistant and based on some of the, you know, off ball movement they got around Luca last year at the Mavs, I think that that could help some. Cause like in that playoff series, when the Celtics are basically, you know, throwing multiple bodies, being super physical with Kevin Durant, you can see clear spacing issues why that was happening. Like when you have Andre Drummond in the dunker spot and you have Bruce Brown in the weak side corner and you can just load up on the strong side of the floor and double versus what the Bucks are doing when it's like Jeff Green and Joe Harris, that's a lot you know, a different situation for the defense to be able to combat when you have that spacing. But at the same time, like they weren't really giving Kevin Durant a lot of help with some of their weak side secondary actions either. So um, I do think Igor will help in that particular department, but defensively, you know, losing Emi Yudoka was a little bit of a, a brain drain there, I think. So um, we'll see how the switching works out, but I do feel better when it's Ben Simmons and Claxton versus, you know, some of the pieces that they've had in the past. No doubt. So there are four teams left that we haven't hit on the heat Celtics bucks and Sixers two tiers that we can break these into those that are you know, playoff certainty, but not quite title contender or teams that we think are legit playoff contender. I think probably the easiest way is to just go team by team and see who you put in what category. Let's start with the easiest one, the Celtics, because they're the reigning Eastern conference champions I have them as a title contender. I don't know if you see any reason why they might have taken a step backwards. No, I have them as as a title contender as well. I mean, I think that they probably only got better. Um, I have some questions about some of what Malcolm Brogdon will help them with, just based on my knowledge of Malcolm. But you do that deal 10 times out of 10. I mean, they basically got him for you're not going to play Aaron Neesmith. They don't care if they have that pick next year anyways. 
Um, in terms of what their turnover issues were, particularly in transition, I think Malcolm's definitely going to help them there. I think he does give them an off-ball threat if that's a role that Malcolm's willing to take on. If they're hoping that he's going to be a true playmaking point guard, I would probably quibble with that a little bit. But um, that's just you know where I stand on that one. I think that you're still kind of reliant on Jason Tatum and being able to play off of two feet and drawing fouls and what his advantage creation is going to be but Malcolm helps you in those situations. He's a great slot driver. He's going to put pressure on the rim in those situations. Hopefully his three-point shooting can rebound to where it was with the Bucks or where it was early on with the Pacers by comparison to where it was last year. But um, And also just Jalen Brown working on his handle. Like I still think ultimately you know, where they land is going to depend on those top two guys. But you know, they made it to game six of the NBA Finals last year with them. So yeah, I see no reason to drop Boston outside of you know title contender status. Yeah, I mean, if again, if they can get the game six with all of those small areas to continue to improve or or just uh, critique on, th- they're in good shape. All right, let's go. Uh, let's go Milwaukee next. Milwaukee Bucks here. Obviously, Giannis, uh, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, like that group in its own has proven they can win an NBA championship. Some toggling in and out of the role pieces coming up a bit short last year. Where are you at with Milwaukee? Title contender? Yeah, I have them in the title contender right there with Boston as well. I mean, I don't – I'm sure that Bucks fans and maybe Celtics fans are both tired of hearing what is going to be somewhat of a cliche. But if Chris Middleton plays and Boston doesn't shoot the lights out of the ball in Game 7, we might be talking about this slightly differently. Their defense did you know, drop off some last year, but Brooke Lopez missed – a large portion of time. Well, it remains to be seen what Joe Ingles will give them and when he's healthy and what he looks like when he's healthy. But in terms of getting another wing, another connective passer, somebody who can run pick and roll, I do think that that helps them. So um, I see no reason not to consider the Milwaukee Bucks a title contender next year. Sure. Okay. So the the two more interesting ones to me then, Philadelphia 76ers, loads of talent with Harden and Embiid, just arguably one of the best offensive, if not the best offensive one-two punch in the NBA. Tyrese Maxey emerging into a star. A a lot of young role players. You still got Tobias Harris on the roster there as a good third option or fourth option offensively. Is this a legitimate title contender, or is there a reason that you might hold them back from getting to that level? I struggled with this one a lot. Um, I felt really solid about Boston and Milwaukee, and I toggled back and forth with Philadelphia, but I ultimately put them as a title contender. Um, I think that you're going to have to see early on if James Harden can look a little bit more like James Harden than what he did um, going out against the Miami Heat. But I I like them adding Melton and House Jr. and P.J. Tucker. Um, I think that that gives them a lot more defensive flexibility and not that they were a bad defensive team, but just being able to throw more coverages at opponents. I think that they can potentially put entirely switch lineups out there. I think that it's possible that they'll run some PJ Tucker at the five off the bench. Um, I think that they could, you know, and Bede will probably still stay and drop at the five, but I think that there's lineups where they can switch with the other four people, which, you know, when you're going from those three guys versus having, you know, Seth Curry, Cork Maz, uh, you know, we'll see whether Matisse Thibel remains right in the rotation or is out on the fringe, depending upon how much he hampered some of their lineups offensively last year. Like they just don't have as many weak links that people are able to hunt with the personnel that they added. So um, I think I already felt pretty good about them last year in the playoffs up until the point when, you know, Joel Embiid had some of the injury issues. So 
Um, I think I'm prepared to say title contender, but things will have to break right for them. So I would probably have like a little bit of a gap between them and Boston and Milwaukee, but I feel good about Philadelphia. I'm just going to hit the retweet button on everything you just said, because that's, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at with it as well. That leaves one team left, Caitlin. Another hard one. Another hard one. And I'll, I'll be honest with this one. I left the Miami Heat in the not quite there yet tier. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over to you. Where did you end up with them? I put them in the not quite title contender tier as well. I didn't feel good about it. I don't ever feel good about betting against the Miami Heat, but I, I don't think that they're on the same level as the team they just had. Like, I do think that it, it hurts them to a degree to have lost PJ Tucker. I think in closing lineups, they're probably going to have to look at playing Jimmy Butler at the four. Um, and then, you know, Victor Oladipo, very impressive with his defense, always has impressed me since he was a pacer with what he does on that end of the floor in terms of being a disruptor, in terms of being a help defender. But if you're having to play Victor and Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler and Bam at the same time, not that Tyler's affecting the spacing issues, but I do think that they could have some spacing issues on that end of the floor. Jimmy already needed help. They didn't get Donovan Mitchell. They didn't get Kevin Durant. Um, I just don't see them quite on the same level as what they were. Maybe they lean more into Bam doing more quarterback stuff if they have to have those three out there at the same time. But I think that they're going to have to bet, and it's been a formula that's worked for them in the past. They're going to have to bet on getting development internally or somebody really surprising us out of nowhere, which you know seems to happen for them about every season. And also like maybe experimenting some with what they're doing defensively. Maybe they're a team that can run you know, some zone press type stuff with Gabe Vincent and Victor Oladipo and Jimmy Butler, you know, maybe they can throw some different looks. Maybe they do have to play a little bit more drop in some situations than what they were able to do in terms of their switchiness with PJ out there at the four. But um, why, what was your reservation on Miami? It was a lot of the stuff that you just said. I think that the lack of depth in the front court and and losing a guy like PJ Tucker really is going to hurt them uh, in some regard. I think they have too many perimeter defenders that are easy targets in a playoff series. And look, as we've moved forward in this discussion, it's gone from, you know, regular season team and regular season results of making the playoffs towards, okay, they're in, but are they a legitimate threat to win the Eastern conference? And when we talk about Boston and Milwaukee, I think that there's too much size length across multiple positions and defensive acumen for the Miami heat to overcome them in a best of seven series. Yeah. When I look at, at Philadelphia, I think that that's a team that has enough talent to go neck and neck with Miami in a, in a seven game series where it might be a toss up for who ends up winning it, but it's not a clear, I know exactly how the Miami heat, find a way to go after Joel Embiid game after game, possession after possession, and really punish him on the floor. Uh, I just, if we're talking about title contenders, I don't think you can be the fourth best team in your league and have it be a ton of comfort in my mind that you're going to be a title contender. Right. I mean, I think that those other teams you mentioned probably have more collective two-way players than what Miami has where they're either having to, cover up for shooters on, on the defensive end of the floor are lacking in shooting at the other end. Um, you're probably hoping that Tyler Hero takes some steps forward as an isolation scorer. I mean, I think that that's where Donovan Mitchell, like even though he's not, wouldn't have helped them defensively, I think that the jump that you get from him as an isolation scorer, you know, you're probably willing to accept that trade-off. Because like you look at that Philadelphia series, 
the Sixers were pretty much blitzing Tyler anytime he got the ball. And it's one thing to play out of the blitz and play through that. It's a whole nother thing not to need the screen at all. So, I mean, if you can get some development from him there, that would certainly help you, but that would make up for what you're having to do to shield him defensively. But I think I'm with you. Um, it, it never, it never feels good. Like I said, to bet against the Miami heat, but I just don't feel like they're quite where they were last year. And some of these issues were a thing last year. So. And and I, I think the Sixers will internally get better as they have more cohesion with Harden and Embiid. They have health. I think that's a a huge factor um, where I just, I would take the Sixers in a series head to head with, with Miami. So would I. So Caitlin, you are, and always have been the GOAT. And my basketball work <laughs> crush. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us here. Let the people know what do you have coming on lately? What's what's on the docket for you and where can people find you online? All right. So my handle's right here at C2 underscore Cooper. I'm at Indy Cornrows a couple times a week. People can look back. I did two really uh, tedious pieces this month for August that I had set aside where I tracked all of Tyrese's jump passes and wanted yeah. to see how effective he can how effective he is at dissecting defenses from the air and where he can still grow. And then the other piece that I mentioned at the top of this about tracking, you know, them switching mid possession from zone to man and and what that looked like. Um, Right now I'm kind of just on trade watch for the rest of this particular month. I've just kind of been hanging back doing some of these preview pods, like this great conversation tonight and waiting to see if the Pacers are going to have any deals left. And, and since they're still one of the few teams with cap space, um, if they plan on doing anything with that. So the, the Halliburton jump pass piece was one of the best things I've read all year. And uh, thank you. no surprise whatsoever, but if anyone out there hasn't gotten to it, make sure you do. But as always, I'm, I'm Coach Spins from the Boxing One. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll make sure we see you next week.